of it since you look for the thing. Be diligent, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Luke 17 once again. Luke 17. My mouse fell asleep. Oh, I turned him off. Luke 17. I'm pretty well thinking my mouse is nearly dead anyway. I've had him a couple years, three years almost, and... Uh, you click and it decides to click three, four, five times, and it's just not good. So, <laughs> that's right. <coughs> yeah, it obeys when it feels like it, in the way that it chooses to. All right, episode 25 in the last Judean and Priam ministry of Jesus, lessons on faith, service, faith, and influence. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. We uh, have covered three of the points of study and ran out of time as we introduced point four last week. As this phase of ministry winds down, four common messages are recapped by Luke. And uh, this is a feature we've seen before. As each stage came to a close, the Lord would go through a series of recaps and reviewing type messages before moving on and... and uh, changing the message to another phase of his ministry. And that's what's happening here. We had the development on the stumbling blocks. And I forgot to write down the slide numbers here, so that's okay. And then thirdly, disciples in spiritual combat must be alert to forgiveness opportunities. Must be on the alert for forgiveness opportunities. And these uh, forgiveness opportunities are spelled out for you here in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You have a rebuking opportunity that you don't want to miss. Uh, uh, you don't want to allow it to go by without redeeming it. And likewise, when forgiveness takes place, you have a for, you have a or when repentance takes place, you have a forgiveness opportunity that you don't want to let go by without redeeming it to the glory of Jesus Christ. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And that may seem a little extraordinary. That may seem unreasonable. There's no way that I'm going to forgive somebody seven times in the same day over and over and over again. That's just not right. Well, human viewpoint says that's not right. God's divine viewpoint says up to seven times a day, up to 70 times seven. We're not keeping track. We're not counting. Because no matter how many times a day that we that uh, someone else offends us, we are not the absolute standard of righteousness. All sin is against the Father, and, and whatever it is that was done was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we can forgive anything without limits. There's no limit to uh, forgiveness. And that's where we want to pick it up again here today. Before we do, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Spirit and we can ask the Father to set aside distractions. We can also ask Him to overcome whatever Sudafed uh, dizziness and spaced out thinking might uh, otherwise affect our class today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon or this morning, thankful for your grace, thankful for your truth, thankful for this time together, and asking for your blessing on our study. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. These aren't just academic pursuits. We're not uh, simply accumulating knowledge so that we can know more. Father, we're studying to show ourselves approved. We want to know you better. We want to be so intimate with you, Father, that we know how to conduct ourselves, how to lead our lives in a manner that gives the maximum pleasure to Yourself and maximum glory to Your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we study these issues on forgiveness and faith, Father, help us to, uh, to really take hold of them and believe them for what they are so that we can live them and apply them uh, for the glory of our Savior. And we thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so again, this was point three from our study last week. Disciples in spiritual combat must be alert. The things that you're on the alert for. If you're on guard duty, you're on the alert for uh, intruders. You're on the alert for people uh, that aren't supposed to be there. You're on the alert for things that are out of place or doors that are unlocked or other problems depending upon the guard duty that you've been posted to. Well, here's our guard duty. The part of our soldier function when it says be on the alert. And two things we want to be mindful are the rebuking opportunities 
Because if your brother is sinning, you do have that opportunity and responsibility to steer him right. But when he's repentant, you have the uh, responsibility to forgive him without limits. And that's, uh, that's an important concept. In fact, we gave this to you as a part of the clothing that we put on every day. The Christian heart must be put on daily, and that's a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. If you find through the course of your day that you're running a little short on compassion, uh, that uh, your uh, kindness uh, seems to be uh, diminished or your patience appears to be gone, just use it as a red flag to ask yourself, you know what, am I still in fellowship? Because most of these are fruit of the Spirit anyway. Ask yourself, am I in fellowship? And have I put this heart on? Uh, as a as a uh, feature of getting dressed in the morning. I want this heart to be exhibited in me today, all day, every day. This allows for genuine Christ-motivated forgiveness. Christ-motivated forgiveness. You're forgiving for Christ's sake, not for your own sake. Since love bears all things, forgiveness has no numerical limit. Do you believe that? Do you believe that love bears all things? Or do you draw a line in the sand and say, well... Love is going to bear up to this point, up to six times a day, but that seventh time in the same day is just too much. No, Jesus said up to seven times in the day. And even that's an idiom because when you understand the 70 times seven and the principles of the uh, figures of speech that he's using, there is no limit. Love bears all things. I think, too, a greater doctrine on forgiveness would really help us to understand the terminology. Forgiveness is not... Uh, approving of what they're doing and forgiveness is not ignoring what they're doing forgiveness is simply relinquishing your own claim to any kind of payback any kind of recompense Uh, whoever you forgive they don't owe you anything they have to make it right with the lord they have to turn their life around they have to start walking right but they're not paying you back anything and you don't expect them to see Uh, There's other principles as well. Just because you've forgiven a person doesn't mean that you're leaving yourself open to be uh, abused or to be mistreated or to continue to be victimized. That's not forgiveness. See, we want to be shrewd as serpents while we're harmless as doves. And there's a, um, I think there's a misunderstanding with respect to forgiveness that's taught in some Christian circles that just basically leaves yourself as a doormat and says, well, they're going to walk all over me. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is relinquishing of any expectations of repayment, leaving them in God's hands. He will repay and uh, making certain that you are not bearing the mental attitude sin against um, anyone for anything. Thirdly, then, failure to forgive demonstrates an unforgiving heart and such a heart is prepared for Satan's manipulations. If you are not forgiving... If you are not forgiving, then the, the frailties of your damaged soul are such that the devil can make use of that. You have an unforgiving heart. And as an unforgiving heart, you're vulnerable. The devil can take hold of that and work that like you won't believe. All right, And that's the warning that comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He's just licking his chops and rubbing his hands. He says, man, this is something I can work with. Here's a brother, here's a sister. They have an unforgiving heart. I can manipulate that all day long. And the adversary is very good at that. All right, then, the fourth point of study and one we need to build on today, then, uh, the disciples or the apostles in reaction to this uh, seven times a day. Are you kidding me? So the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, increase our faith. If your faith is not yet to the point that you can forgive somebody seven times in a day, then there's growth to be attained to. So point four, disciples under increased attack in combat require increased faith. Trust me. If God the Father is allowing you to face a sevenfold forgiveness test on a daily basis, you're under increased conflict. You're under attack. Now, you are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, and you need to have an increased faith. And so this is expressed here as a uh, face-to-face request on the part of the apostles speaking to the Lord. Our Equivalent, of course, would be prayer. We go to the Father in prayer. We ask for increased faith. There's nothing uh, improper about asking for an increased faith. Let's not think of faith as a static or a, uh, a finite quantity. Faith grows. Faith shrinks. Faith becomes stronger in some seasons. It becomes weaker in some seasons. And we need to identify that. If we think that we're never going to have a season where we're weak in faith, I think we're naive. 
about how the Christian walk goes. We are going to have periods where we are uh, at a, uh, uh, where it ebbs and flows. We're going to have periods where we are at a low point in our faith. Maybe not in every respect, but we all have blind spots. We all have areas. And it might be you're strong in nine different areas. There's just one facet of life you're really weak on. And uh, we can't ignore that or act like that's not the case. I think that's one of the great benefits of marriage and that the father matches you up. And, and uh, in his wisdom, of course, ideally what he can do is give you a spouse that has areas of strength in your areas of weakness. And likewise, uh, you've got areas of strength in your spouse's area of weakness. And that's uh, a way that you can come alongside and bear one another's burdens and uh, be able to bless Christ in that manner. And uh, different applications that we can make there. Well, here we have it, not only in Luke 17, but some side passages as well, particularly over in Matthew 17:20 and Mark 9, verses 23 and 24. And um, we'll have the, uh, the Mark passage, one of our sub-points here. But in Matthew 17:20, I guess we can look at that now before we get some of the sub-points. Understand... Um, you may have a failure. You may have uh, something that's just not working for you. And you say, well, what's different this time? You know, I've been able to do this before. The disciples uh, were coming into a problem casting out a particular demon. And they'd, they'd cast out demons before. They just didn't understand why this time around it was more difficult. Why were they not successful? So um, this is a, an episode here where a man brings his son to the Lord and says... Uh, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. Um, that verse gets quoted a lot, too, in some different contexts, I've noticed. Uh, I'm just saying, I don't know. Um, well, what a prayer request. Have mercy on my lunatic son. How about that? Uh, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? You know, and th Again, this was something they had been successful at previously. Why is it different this time? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. Notice there is a proportion there. In this, in this instance, it's called uh, a small faith. And, and one of the remarkable things that can damage your faith is uh, when you grow complacent in uh, in different things that you think you can handle. And this is where an adolescent believer falls into the snares because he's grown out of his babyhood status. He started to make some application of things. He's had some success in some areas. Uh, maybe he's borne some fruit in some things. Maybe he's pastoring a church or uh, as an evangelist. Maybe he's leading some folks to Christ or a, a deacon or, or something. And you, you know what I'm saying? You get into an adolescent stage and you start serving and, and things start working. And you have some achievements. What happens, though, is a loss of objectivity and you stop walking by faith. Our faith actually shrinks because we start to get the mentality that this is something I'm doing. Or this is something I have done, see. Or uh, this, is, this is a piece of cake. I've done this a thousand times, two thousand times, three thousand times, see. I've taught three thousand six hundred and whatever Bible classes. And so, uh, you know, it's just no big deal. Just get up there and do it. Well, better think again. You better be in fellowship. You better be totally reliant on the Holy Spirit. You better be walking by faith. Or your three thousand six hundred and first Bible class is going to be a total bomb. And uh, you're, uh, you need to edify Christ, you need to edify the body of Christ, and it's always going to be by faith. And I think what happens is, in the case of the disciples here, they quit walking by faith. Their faith actually shrunk. They started thinking that the power was theirs, or the ministry was theirs. Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith inside of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. So there are degrees of faith. Little faith, great faith, and even mustard seed sized faith is considered sufficient to move mountains. And that's a scale of proportion that boggles us sometimes. All right, so some sub points on this then. Faith can wax and wane. Faith can wax and wane. And it will from month to month, from day to day, sometimes from hour to hour depending on what kind of day you're having. 
Faith can wax and wane. I notice I go and I do my monthly prison visit, and, and uh, one of my first questions when I, we sit down, we have prayer, and then we kind of review how the last month went, you know, and uh, how strong is your faith? Is it, a, is it an upward uh, path? Is it kind of dipping low this month? If you had some struggles, what's going on? And there's some months where things are very solid and things are very powerful, and there's other months where there's some struggles, see, which is why we're praying for one another. Psalm 138 and verse 3, Mark 9:24, my favorite verse there. I cited it last week. Uh, Luke 22, 31 and 32, Romans 4, verses 19 through 21. So we've got a good assortment of passages here. Let's start with uh, Psalm 138. Psalm 138 and verse 3. This is a, a Psalm of David. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. This is a psalm that takes some work. David's not a uh, polytheist, but he understands God's praise and glory in the midst of the uh, mightiest of angels, the divine council, the body of Elohim that make the highest ranked angels in the throne room of God. I will bow down toward your holy temple. See, David is definitely heavenly minded here. There is no temple on earth. He wanted to build one. God said, you can't. Your son's going to build it. So what's this temple here he's talking about? David's understanding the heavenly reality where God's holiness resides, where the uh, divine council resides, the highest of the created angels. Uh, the, each one is called an El, and together they're all called Elohim. And uh, David here is uh, extremely focused on true worship in spirit and in truth. I will give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Somebody asked me where that verse was the other day, and I couldn't remember. So if that was you asking me, then now I remember. It's Psalm 138, verse 2. But here's the verse we're headed for, verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. Well, was there any question about that? <laughs> was there any doubt? I mean, come on, this is David. This is a man after God's own heart, of course. Listen, but wait a second. Let's not grow prideful. Let's not think that any of us is entitled to that hotline to heaven or instantaneous answers and so forth. We're walking by faith. We're walking humbly before our God. We're calling out to him in prayer. And when he answers, it's not because we earned it or deserved it. Because he's a God of grace and he's a God that loves to provide for his children. And each day of answered prayer is a day to reinforce our faith. So on the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. So here we see an increased faith, and it's an increased faith that comes about through an active prayer life. Through an active prayer life that's identifying with heavenly worship, that's identifying with conflict, that's uh, identifying with a Father who provides exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Uh, the neatest things you can do with your kids, of course, beyond you, you ground them in Scripture, you teach them Bible lessons, you uh, give them memory verses and all of that. But uh, beyond that, beyond the Word, is prayer. You involve them in prayer. You teach them how to pray. You include them when you pray. Uh, you show them what you're praying for. What are mommy and daddy praying for? And, and when an answer to prayer comes, you share it with them again. You say, see, prayer works. And you highlight for them the, the blessings and benefits when God provides through prayer. And so this is uh, an instance of faith growing stronger. Over in Mark 9, you got the wonderful verse I shared last week. Where the man said, Lord, I do believe. And then he turns right around in the same breath. The boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is a wonderful verse. It's unique to Mark. Mark 9.24. You won't find it in the Matthew and Luke parallels. Um, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is a recognition that even when you're walking by faith, there is still a degree to which you're lacking and can be increased. You can increase that faith. You have faith, you're walking by faith, but there is still a proportion or a degree or a component that is not as faith, uh, full of faith as it could be. It's unbelief at that point. See, help my unbelief. In other words, increase the level that I have. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Luke 22, 31 and 32. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Remember this passage? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And, uh, but he goes on to say, but I have prayed for you. The truth is, when you, when you evaluate this passage, permission has been granted. We are in the age of satanic sifting. That the coming church age, of course, the church age is still future at this point when Jesus is speaking about it. But the imminent coming church age is the age of satanic sifting. It's the age of maximum conflict. You and I live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict where satanic sifting is permitted. It's permitted because we have resources they didn't have in the Old Testament. But I have prayed for you. We have Jesus Christ ever living to make intercession for the saints. He sits at the Father's right hand. He prays for us. So the adversary can sift us and do whatever he's going to do. That's fine. I don't like it, but he's got permission to do whatever he's going to do in this current age. doesn't matter. Because whatever it is he's permitted to do, Jesus Christ gave permission. And it's not Satan's purpose being accomplished. It's God's purpose being accomplished. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's first prayer request. Pray, number one, that you pass the test and not blow it. But what happens if you do blow it? (laughs) Well, that's prayer request number two. And you, and once you have turned again, returned, repented, come back, strengthen your brothers. So prayer request number one is that your faith may not fail. But guess what? Faith waxes and wanes and you're going to blow some tests. You're going to fail some tests. I guarantee you're going to fail some tests because the only guy that never failed any test is the one that went to the cross and the seat of the right hand right now. You're going to fail tests. Hopefully fewer in the coming years than you failed in times past. But you're still going to fail tests. And when you do, that you have an opportunity to learn from them. And not only do you have an opportunity to learn from them, you can encourage your brothers and sisters to also learn from your mistakes. Strengthen them so that they don't make the same failure. They don't repeat the same failure. They don't uh, um, imitate your failure. When you return again, strengthen your brothers. Weak faith is uh, to be learned from and to be used as a teaching opportunity. Finally, then Romans 4, verses 19 through 21. And here's the illustration here of Abraham. I think it's a good illustration. We're told in verse 18, and hope against hope, he believed. So he had hope in the promises of God, even though in human terms there is no hope. And then verse, and why is he able to do that? Because verse 19, without becoming weak in faith. When you remain strong in your faith and you don't allow yourself to become weak, when you become weak, you let it happen. So without becoming weak in faith, stay strong in your faith, reinforce your faith. Because that reinforced faith allows you to have hope when there is no hope. You have hope with divine viewpoint when there's no hope with human viewpoint. So without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. And this is the category of sexual death. As we break down the different kinds of death and his advanced age, he's past the point of marital um, activity. Since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. See, I think this is why Sarah was laughing so much. They hadn't had uh, you know, a bedroom encounter for some time. And she's laughing. And Abraham's laughing too. The only difference is he's laughing in faith. She's laughing in uh, carnality. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. See, here's what will happen in, when you allow yourself to fall into unbelief. You take your eyes off of who promised and what he promised. When you stop thinking about the Lord, and when you stop focusing on what He promised, well, what do you think is going to happen to your faith? It's going to plunk right in the deepest bucket you can pitch it into. You've got to keep your eyes on the Lord and keep your mind focused on what He promised. But He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So here's your expressions. Weak in faith, 
strong in faith. And strong in faith is a growth process. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Meaning, you pass your test, you go through some tough times. When God provides, He gets the glory in every test. Being fully assured that what God had promised, He was also able to perform. This is what comes about. When Paul did the same thing, Paul would say, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You just boil it down to say, you know what? God promised it and God's going to do it. And it's what keeps you strong in your faith. Strong in faith equals spiritual maturity. I equate the two. I equate the two. Strong in faith equals spiritual maturity. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Strong in faith. Your mature believers are the ones who are strong in faith. And that's, I'm talking spiritually mature. They might be biologically young. It's quite possible for a young man, a young woman, to be more mature than her elders and his elders if they're walking in the light, if they're spiritually strong, strong in faith. Timothy was a young man, but he was powerful in the Scriptures. He was strong in faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Acts 6, verses 5 and 8. The entirety of chapter 7 is an illustration of that. Uh, Stephen there, who's introduced in chapter 6 and highlighted in chapter 7. And then Acts 11.24 is the final reference there. So what happens if you are a mature believer and then for whatever reason you grow weak in your faith again? Is it possible to lose your maturity? Is, is it possible to regress back into uh, an adolescent or even to back to a babe stage if you starve yourself away from the Word of God and start, quit walking by faith? Yes, it is. It is possible to regress. That's why uh, we're commanded to not throw away your confidence, but it has a great reward, or to hold fast to your crown. All right, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Fourfold imperative that closes out 1 Corinthians. Really, those four imperatives is the summary thumbnail for the whole book. You can summarize all of 1 Corinthians with be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strengthened. Strong in faith equals spiritual maturity. The first deacons were selected on the basis of their spiritual maturity, on the basis of their being strong in the faith. Acts chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. These are all men, by the way. I was asked the other day about deaconesses. We do have deaconesses mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We also have Phoebe's deaconess that's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. But when the office of, of deacon was first instituted, the, the first men selected as deacons were all, all men, the first deacons here. And we read about it in verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. This is the biblical basis by which we can poll a congregation or take a vote of the congregation that uh, the spiritual leadership is making a proposal and uh, they leave it with the members and the membership testifies to their like-mindedness and agreement with the proposal of the leadership and uh, basically the leadership says if we uh, if we get busy serving tables we're going to neglect prayer we're going to neglect the ministry of the word so let's appoint some servants to help with these earthly things so we can stay focused on spiritual things. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The requirements were given back in verse 3, by the way. Brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. They're given delegated responsibilities and uh, requirements, of course, for spiritual maturity and faithfulness. And so they chose Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. Notice uh, the congregation chose them, but they still had to get the approval of the apostles. After praying, they laid their hands on them 
ordination of deacons. We don't really practice that today, but I do know there's a Baptist church down the street. I attended a number of years ago. They had a deacon ordination where they laid on hands. Then verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You say, well, why is he doing that? He's just a deacon. <laughs> he should be serving tables and making widows happy and, and solving fights between, you know, well, why is he powerful in the spirit? What's he got this other ministry going on? Keep in mind, we're all in the ministry. We all have open doors of ministry one way or the other. And so all of chapter 7 then is an illustration for Stephen and his strong in faith and uh, spiritual maturity status. Gives the, the Sanhedrin a walk through the Old Testament. Shows how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything. And then uh, dies uh, in uh, martyr victory here at the end of the chapter. Chapter 11 and verse 24 is the last reference we'll have on this. And here's... Uh, Description of uh, Levi, <coughs> otherwise known as Barnabas. And, um, yeah, I was going to try to read a larger selection of this, but that's all right. Verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he had arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. See, you've got to evaluate those expressions. When it says full of the Holy Spirit, that mean he was in fellowship. Does that mean he confessed his sins? He wasn't out of fellowship? No, it means that he was strong, he was powerful in bearing fruit. He had a spiritual maturity in, on the basis of which was a um, strong, being strong in faith. All right, well, there's your uh, examples there. Now, the last thing we have in, in Luke 17, then, is the story of the faithless or the unworthy slaves. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Forgiveness and faith are illustrated by unworthy slaves. Forgiveness and faith are illustrated by unworthy slaves. Point five in your outline. Forgiveness and faith are illustrated by unworthy slaves. So you're in spiritual combat. You have to be alert to forgiveness opportunities. You're in spiritual combat. You have to have an increased faith. And an illustration for what's expected of you with that increased faith and what's expected of you in those forgiveness opportunities is given here in terms of these slaves. In verses 7 through 10. All right, verse 7. Which of you? And uh, he's making it very personal because the apostles made it personal. He was teaching about forgiveness and then he's teaching about faith, and the apostles make it personal. They say, Lord, increase our faith. So he talks to you, second person plural. He talks to the disciples and about how you need faith like a mustard seed. And you, which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down to eat. All right. Your slave comes in from the field. Do you have that slave's dinner ready for him? Does he come in from the field and you're there meeting him at the door and you take his coat, you take his briefcase and his shoes and you give him his slippers and his pipe is already filled and lit and you sit him down there in the chair and you got the hot meal ready for him and a cold beverage of whatever sort. And you're th are, is that what happens to a slave? No. Absolutely not. And uh, the story gets even worse. When the slave comes in the house, you're the master. You're not a slave. Uh, you're not serving that slave. Um, the slave is actually entitled to eat. He hasn't been working all day. Okay, now you're not going to feed him. Uh, there's other slaves that are going to prepare the food for the for the servants to eat. Well, for whatever reason, uh, they seem to be gone or uh, sick or dead or sold or whatever. Um, the indoor slaves uh, have not prepared the meal. Um, and it doesn't say why, it doesn't matter why. 
and is probably a good idea that we don't know why, because it doesn't matter. Sometimes um, we've done our share. We've done our load. And then God expects us to do more. You say, well, wait a minute. That's not my department. I'm the outdoor slave. I'm the plow slave. I'm the shepherd slave. I'm the outdoor slave. I, I did my shift. I'm done. I'm in the house now. And there should be some indoor slaves here that ought to have my food ready for me. Okay? And they're not. The food's not ready. In fact, not only is the food not ready for the slaves, but the master hasn't eaten yet either. Uh-oh. Because none of the slaves are going to eat until the master's eaten. So, now the outdoor slave has to take over kitchen duties <coughs> and table waiting duties. You say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. I've already done my share. This is the illustration. See, your forgiveness opportunities, too, may be not right, maybe not fair. You've already bent over backwards. You've already gone the extra mile. You've already given the shirt off your back. Now, I've got to be an indoor slave, too, as well as an outdoor slave. You see, this is the illustration of, of uh, forgiveness and faith, increased faith. And I think it's an even more powerful illustration of uh, what is expected of us without reward. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read through it. Uh, verses 7 through 10. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterward, you may eat and drink. Okay, that's the reality of it. Then verse 9. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Is he entitled to thanksgiving for doing what he's told to do? He's a slave. So you too, here's the application, you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, like forgiving one another, okay, don't be all full of yourself. Say, oh, I'm a great Christian. Look at me. I forgave my brother three times. So you're commanded to. You're commanded to forgive him 70 times 7. Don't think you're getting some huge reward for, for this forgiveness. It's just expected of you, you wicked slave. So what you too, when you do all the things that are commanded to you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. We're simply obeying what we're expected to do in the Christian way of life. No reward. We're just doing what we're expected to do. All right, so let's spell this out for you then. There's some subpoints here. The illustration, subpoint A. The illustration uses an outdoor slave completing his daily assignment. The illustration uses an outdoor slave. Either a Somebody was out there plowing the fields or shepherding the flock, or whatever they were doing. Completing his daily assignment. The uh, Actually, a lifespan here wouldn't have been so bad. Um, the worst were slaves that were sent to work the mines. They had the shortest lifespans. The uh, slaves that rode the war galleys uh, right behind them in terms of very short lifespans. Uh, agricultural slaves weren't as bad as either of those. They still lived a shorter life than the indoor slaves, kitchen staff, domestic uh, servants, uh, slave girls, um, companion slaves, things like that. They lived the longest. But uh, the point being is that uh, slaves, particularly in the Roman Empire, in the in the realm in which this passage was given were, were tended to be either outdoor or indoor type servants. And here's an outdoor servant that's expected at the end of his shift to pull the weight for somebody else. Don't know where they are, what else was going on, but they have to prepare the master's meal. They have to wait on the master. In fact, change your clothes. You, you smell like sheep, <laughs> right? Um, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself. Yeah, you act like you just came in from the fields or something. 
So uh, dress properly. Particularly, the slaves would be expected to uh, wash the master's feet uh, in the reclining at the table and the, the different things that would happen in the Roman uh, dining, uh, uh, dining area there. Anyway, he's completed. So he's come in. Which of you having a slave? And it doesn't matter if he's a plowing slave or a tending sheep slave. Either way, the point being an outdoor slave uh, comes in. When he has come in from the field. See that in verse 7? When he has come in from the field. So his, his day is done. His, his shift is complete. Okay? Maybe there's uh, another slave that relieved him for the night that's going to watch over the sheep by night. doesn't matter. This guy is done for the day. He's come in. He's worked his full day. The point being, though, he's not going to, the master doesn't serve that slave. The slave owner does not honor the slave with a rewarding meal, nor does he serve the slave in any way. The slave owner doesn't uh, gush over him and say, oh, man, it was a hot day out there today. You've got to be exhausted. Man. You really pulled some overtime today, or you fought off a, a lion or a bear or whatever. You took care of the sheep, and it was blistering hot out there, and you look wiped out. Here, let me let me get you a, a beer, <laughs> right, or whatever a slave drinks at the end of the day. Uh, the master's not going to do that. You know, the slave's doing what the slave's supposed to be doing. That's what the slave was bought for. He's purchased for that reason. That's his existence, see. In fact, he would think something was definitely wrong if the master started to sit him down in the triclinium and serve him a meal and put him in a toga or whatever. What's going on here? Okay. A slave owner does not honor the slave with a rewarding meal or serve the slave in any way. Now, this, by the way, is a wonderful illustration because what are we entitled to when we get to heaven? We're getting a meal. In fact, he's going to dress us in a robe and he's going to dress us in clean robes. And Jesus, who's the king of the universe, uh, is washing the disciples' feet in that upper room. Oh, there's some powerful things that go into these, into these concepts here. Um, yes, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are bondservants of Jesus Christ, but we are more than bondservants because we're also friends. We're also brethren, and we have a feast that's prepared for us. So um, we, can't, we want to be careful trying to um, over-apply or put ourselves in this parable to... Uh, to a greater degree than what this passage is talking about here. This passage is illustrating forgiveness and faith, which are simply expected of any slave. That's what we're illustrating. So the slave owner does not honor the slave with a rewarding meal, nor does he serve him in any way. Now, in fact, the slave owner even goes so far as to add to the workload of the outdoor slave. This is sub point one now under B. The slave owner even goes so far as to add to the workload. He says, oh, I'm glad you're finally here. I'm hungry. Get in the kitchen, start cooking something. He adds to the workload of the outdoor slave by assigning him duties of an indoor slave. And again, this is where we might be tempted to say, well, it's not my job. Somebody else is taking care of that. Not my fault. I've done what I'm supposed to be doing. No. You don't object to your master. You're a slave. You do what you're told. The outdoor slave must delay his own sustenance. He was looking forward to a meal. He figured by the time he came in from the day, the master's already eaten, and the indoor cooking slaves already have the servants' meals ready to go. Now he's got to delay his own sustenance until his unfair assignments above and beyond the call of normal duty are fulfilled. And I love this because this is really a remarkable illustration of attitudes we might adopt if we feel put upon, if we feel mistreated, if we uh, are reluctant to uh, engage in a forgiveness opportunity that the Father's given to us. We might uh, step into this, uh, into this parable or this metaphor here very uh, fervently. All right, point C then. The slave is unworthy of the owner's gratitude. The term unworthiness there. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? 
thinking as a grace application. There's no grace at work in slavery. You're doing what you're told. You're doing what you're commanded. You're under law. The slave is unworthy of the owner's gratitude. The slave is simply doing what he has been commanded to do. He is functioning under a have to rather than a want to and is not expecting any reward. In fact, a reward would be wrong. He's functioning under a have to rather than a want to. Remember, we studied the have to's and the want to's in 1 Corinthians. In the passage of study out of, I think it was chapter 6, where uh, Paul was discussing the ministry that he has about serving voluntarily against my will. Remember that? Say, how can it be voluntarily against my will? The wonderful uh, application for a church age saint in the sense that we are slaves and we have have to's, uh, but we are also brothers and we have want to's. And we, of course, can't neglect any of the have to's. We have to be obedient to everything that's expected of us as bondservants. But at the same time, we can go above and beyond and engage in the want-tos. Over and above and beyond anything that we have to do. Because we want to. We don't tithe 10% because we have to. We give under grace what we want to. You understand. And it's the want-tos, if you remember the study from 1 Corinthians, it's the want-tos that are rewardable. Not the have-tos that are rewardable. It's the want-tos that are rewardable. God loves the cheerful giver. Each man must give as he is purposed in his heart. It's the want-tos that have a reward assigned to them. And the whole idea of thankfulness, of gratitude, of, of uh, even the word gratitude comes from gratis, comes from grace. And the giving of thanks is a, is a grace application. The slave's not entitled to that. He's not functioning under grace. He's functioning under law. He's functioning under slavery. So you too... Now he's making again very personal here to the servant, to the apostles. When you do all the things which are commanded you, when you do all the things which are commanded you, that's what he's been talking about in this chapter. Stumbling blocks, faith, and forgiveness. Or stumbling blocks, forgiveness, and faith. I guess that's the better order. When you do the things which are commanded to you, you need to understand that it's expected. It's a, it's a have to. And don't be uh, thinking that you're all entitled to some kind of reward. When you do all the things that are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. That which we ought to have done. Believers who lay hold of an increased faith for additional forgiveness assignments are the equivalent of these unworthy, or what the Holman Christian Standard Bible calls good-for-nothing, good-for-nothing slaves. Unworthy, good-for-nothing slaves. New King James and King James, I think, has unprofitable there, I think is the term. Unworthy, good-for-nothing slaves. Forgiving one another is a have to. You do so in obedience to Jesus Christ. You do so as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Uh, you do so because you're commanded to do so. Don't feel like you're entitled to anything because you're being obedient to the commands. It's normal for your, for your position in the body and bride of Jesus Christ. See, and here's your closing principle then. Forgiving one another is a have to in the Christian way of life. Forgiving one another is a have to. It's not rewardable. Oh, yeah, there's consequences if you don't. You know, divine discipline if you defy God's will. But uh, you're thinking about special blessings in time for doing what you're commanded to do? No. It's expected of you. <coughs> God doesn't reward you for the have-tos. He rewards you for the want-tos. The free will offerings that you offer above and beyond. Forgiving one another is a have-to in the Christian way of life. Even in situations above and beyond normal duties. The sixth, fifth, sixth, and seventh times you've forgiven your brother in the same day. 
You know, you're closing in on 490. You've forgiven somebody 488 times, and you're just thinking, man, two more times and I'm done, right? No. It's a have to. 70 times 7 is an idiom anyway, so when the 491st occasion rises up to forgive them, you forgive them. And it's a have to. Because God in Christ has forgiven you. And if you're, if you're unforgiving, a fellow slave that owes you 10 bucks, when your Lord forgave you 20 billion bucks in your uh, debt to Him, you're familiar with that parable, that story? To demonstrate unforgiveness when you've been forgiven so much is unthinkable. You're opening yourself up for some prime divine discipline at that point. Okay. Questions? Anything? We're six minutes early. Done. Does it apply to unbelievers too? You know, no. Uh, the blessings of forgiveness are for one another, part of the one another commands. Now, you are commanded to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. But the imperatives of forgiveness um, are part of the church age benefits and blessings of being the body of Christ. It's when your brother sins that you forgive him. That's, that's family. Yeah. Yes. What he's saying there in verse 10, again, reviewing point D, believers who lay hold of an increased faith for additional forgiveness assignments. In other words, he's taking this, this uh, paragraph where he's been teaching stumbling blocks, he's been teaching forgiveness, he's been teaching faith. They said, increase our faith. So he's talking to them and he says, you too, when you do all these things. What's he talking about there? He's not talking about coming in from the field and fixing a meal. He's talking about forgiving your brother seven times in a day. He's talking about asking for increased faith. When you do all these things, um, which are commanded you, then your attitude has to be that you are the equivalent of this unworthy slave. You're not entitled to reward or recompense. You're not entitled to some kind of special accolades because you're doing what you've been told to do. It's expected of you as a slave to forgive one another. That's why it says, you too, when you do all these things which are committed, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. That's why in part of Paul's ministry, he says, you know what? What credit is there to me if I preach the gospel? He says, woe will be unto me if I preach not the gospel. He said, a stewardship has been entrusted to me. Paul said, by the grace of God, I'm an apostle. I have to preach the gospel. What's the reward in doing what you have to do? You turn it into a reward when you make it a want to instead of a have to, and you're able to go above and beyond that. We taught all that in 1 Corinthians. But we want to identify when we're simply doing the have to's that uh, we don't want to get prideful or think that somehow we're entitled to something for being obedient. That's the. Uh, did that answer your question? Okay. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for all things. We're looking forward, Father. I'm going to head over there and see the cement being poured. We trust by faith that's happening here today. Uh, looking forward to that. And just again, giving you the praise and glory for all that you're accomplishing. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.